And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, the disciples saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to Jesus. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep. But since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah not knowing at all what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent, and in those days told no one, of any of the things they had seen. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. In Canberra today, the PM stood up in the house and made a statement concerning a white paper and then read the words into Hansard. Actually, it didn't happen because Parliament's not sitting at the moment. But you pretty much understood all the words I said there, right? Most thinking Australians would know that um, PM stands for the Prime Minister, and we know that because he's standing up in Canberra, which is currently our capital. It wasn't always. It used to be Melbourne, remember? The Melbourneites always like to remind the Sydneyites that they were the first capital of Australia. But we, we understand what we mean when we say Canberra. He wasn't standing in Belconnen Mall. We understand where he was. And when we say the House, we know that that means the House of Representatives. We, we don't need to much explain these things to each other. We know that Hansard, does anybody know why Hansard, what, we all know what Hansard is. It's the record of this, what is said in Parliament and it's recorded verbatim. And then most of it is available for us to read uh, now these days on the web. Do you know what Hansard is named after? It's named after a Mr. Hansard in the 16th century, I think, who was the first person to record and print what was said in Parliament. And probably he was a printer generally in publishing. So, but we know all what these, all these things mean. We even know roughly what a white paper generally is. It's a statement of, of a department wanting to lay out their thinking on a set of policies that they want us to adopt or they want the government to adopt. Of course, to somebody who doesn't know our system, it would all be gobbledygook. Why does a, something called a PM stand up in a house and make a statement to something called Hansard? I, what, what is going on here? It, it's not that far for us looking at the story of the Transfiguration. There's a lot going on in it that will bypass us because it's not part of our culture. We have to learn it. So when Jesus is, uh, is on a mountain, and there's lots of things, and I'm just going to pick out a few. When he's on a mountain, that's always the sign that somebody is close to God because their cosmology was God's up here, uh, something else is down there, and we're in the middle. That, 
And that's a reasonable cosmology until it, you discover that the universe doesn't have those kinds of dimensions. It has at least four, possibly eight, maybe 16, and you know, they keep multiplying the number of dimensions we might have. But you know, in that world, that made sense. And whenever you saw a cloud in the story, it's a reminder of the cloud that came over the that came with the people at the Exodus, which is the great founding story of the nation. So when you ever hear a cloud, you would automatically think those sorts of thoughts that this is something momentous that's happening. There's something to do with Moses and the Exodus and the great story of the founding of the one of the great stories of the founding of the nation and the constant presence of God. And when you see a story that Moses and Elijah appear in, and you know, it's no point asking how did they know it was Moses and Elijah because it's not that kind of a story. You know, it's not a story where, it, where the first thing you want to ask is about facts. The first, story, the first question you want to ask about Hamlet, Shakespeare's great, and lots of people say greatest play, is not, did it really happen? It's like, who cares? The first thing you want to ask about Hamlet is, what are the truths in it? And we're still finding them over and over again. Somebody puts it on and we, brings out a different kind of element of all the pain and fear and uh, duplicity that is in human life. Lots of it is encapsulated in that place. So it's a little bit like that. that don't worry about how they figured out it was Moses and Elijah. They just said it was. But what's important is that Moses represented the great tradition and culture of the nation. The law came with Moses. And the law is not L-A-W, a bunch of rules. Remember the Ten Commandments is not just a bunch of rules that you should follow. It's the shorthand for a way of life. It's better to write it L-O-R-E. It's the culture of a place. It's a culture of a whole set of people. And Moses represented that. Elijah, there's a great tradition about Elijah that would have been well known to the people hearing this story for the first time, is that Elijah never died. The story is that Elijah went up to heaven, again, the cosmology went up, in a, on a fiery chariot. And you always wonder why we haven't seen a film of that, because, you know, with all the CGI we've now got, it would, look, it would be a barn burner, wouldn't it? Anyway, Elijah never died, and not only that, but Elijah will appear at the end of time. That was the great tradition. So if you had a story with Moses and Elijah in it, you've got the beginning of everything and the end of everything. And everything's dazzling white and there's glory all around, that sense of, of, of the numinous. And, and then, the, and that again is another connection with the idea of God. Now we miss many of these things. Because either because it's not part of our culture, which it's not particularly. It's also because for those of us who've been in church a lot, it just becomes a bit sort of, oh, we've heard this every year. In fact, we do. We hear one of the, the gospel readings every year at this time. But what we're reading is a first century experience or event or vision, and they're not necessarily that much different from each other, of the, uh, the, the, uh, of an experience of the divine, an experience of the, the oneness of the universe. It was the confirmation for people who read it of the growing knowledge and experience that Jesus was somehow unique. That he had a unique link to God. In fact, it, we, the, one of the Gospels, the Gospel of John, which comes much later than the others, there's a constant story about Jesus being 
a child of God, so intimately linked with the divine that you can use the term child. No more intimate link, is there, between one human being and another, even genetically, than that link of parent and child. And so there there was a growing awareness that the experience they were having of this ordinary human being turned out to not be as ordinary as it was with everyone else. And they began to see in Jesus a kind of a joining of all the world together. So there's the joining of history. Moses and the law, the great culture of their people, with the future, Elijah. It's as if they're saying that Jesus somehow stands in the middle of all of history and and is drawing it all together, making sense of what happened way back in the midst of time and what will happen in in a future that we can't yet envisage. And because he's on a mountain and because at one point they're covered in a cloud and because there's um, dazzling white, there's this sense that Jesus is kind of drawing together the heavens that are way up there and the earth that is down here and linking them, making them something one. And Jesus talked about this a lot. He said at the end of his life, he said to his disciples, where I am, you will be also. And it's this sense where Jesus himself is becoming more and more aware that there isn't lots of division in the world, there's just the oneness of it. Which is why Jesus seemed so uninterested in the divisions between the rich and the poor, between those who were deserving and those who were undeserving, between those who were clean and those who were unclean. And It's not as if he was on a sort of crusade all the time, to, to break down those barriers. You don't get that sense. You just get that sense where it would have never have occurred to him to imagine that you would treat a woman different to a man or a child different to an adult. It just never occurred to him because he had begun to understand the world as this wholeness in God. And Paul, who writes um, after Jesus' death, but, but well before the Gospels were written down, talks about everything being in Christ and mentioned a few times that idea that Christ is the, is the expanding of the idea of Jesus into the universe after the resurrection, into the oneness of everything. And, and, it, and Paul says everything is encapsulated in that. And you get this sense because Peter has this really good idea. Let's build something. And we love to do that, don't we? I mean, we've got this thing. We've got, these are all over the place. South Australia, we're, we're lousy with church buildings. We love to build things. And we don't, I mean, I don't know if you ever watch the, the TV to see those building shows. There's grand designs, then there's, um, you know, fixing up houses. We, we love that. The idea that we can do something to kind of change the world and, and make it like we want it to be, even if it's in just, you know, a quarter acre block in a suburb. We really want to do that. It, it's kind of part of us. So Peter, you know, a bit, bit panicked by this extraordinary event that's happened to them, says, let's build some booths. And we don't really know what word he was using there. It's quite likely that he meant, let's build something sacred, <clears throat> because there's a festival that the Jews have. Another thing that we wouldn't necessarily know about if we're not Jewish. 
a festival uh, that's basically like a harvest festival and observant Jews, and it still happens in places, I, I've been in New York at times when this festival is on and figured out why I was seeing little wooden lean-tos stuck against a brownstone in, uh, in downtown New York. And what it is, is people go and live in that little lean-to that they've built, a little booth for a few days, I think it's eight days, for this festival of the booths. And it's a great celebration. There's lights everywhere and it's like any harvest celebration. It's a celebration of abundance. So it may have been that Peter had that in mind. Let's build something glorious. But it doesn't go anywhere. You know, you've ever had a good idea and you say it out aloud and no one says, no, it's a stupid idea. No one says anything. You know, like, did, I, did anybody not hear me? Is the microphone not on? Oh. That's exactly what seems to be happening. Peter says that nothing happens. And again, you get this strong sense, I think, from Jesus, that nothing, it's, Peter's not talking into the same world that Jesus is living in. Because Peter is saying, this is well and good, now we need to build something sacred, something really special and godlike that we can commemorate this enormous event. And that doesn't make any sense to Jesus because for Jesus, everything is sacred. Everything is God-inhabited. Everything is full of everything. Everything is everything. And so there's no idea that you can make something special because everything already is special. So you almost get the sense that it drops out because Jesus, it's as if Peter's talking in another language. It doesn't make any sense. How could you build something sacred in a place that is already sacred? Years ago, I was living in Alice Springs and I went out into the desert with a few people who'd come from Sydney for a visit with one of, our, of the aunties. One, and, and, and as you know, in indigenous culture, the term auntie is a term of reverence for an older person, usually a traditional owner, somebody with extraordinary experience and deep knowledge of the, the country, their country, uh, some of which they're allowed to share outside of, uh, of the, the the clan and to, to, to us non-initiated in, um, people. And uh, this auntie went, took us out and, and the, the Sydney people were really excited because they were going to get an experience of what indigenous life was like in, in Central Australia. And so we got into this troopy and we started going out of Alice Springs and uh, we'd gone out about, I think about two k's. And she said, stop. The auntie said, stop. So we stopped and, and one of the Sydney people said, what's wrong, auntie? Um, she said, nothing. She said, well, why are we stopping here? We said, get out. So we all got out and, and we walked up a little sand hill, just about, I don't know, 10 metres away from the, the main road and we sat down. And one of the Sydney people said, are you okay, auntie? Because I thought we were going to go to your country and experience... She said, we, we're in it. Here, sit down. And it, made no sense to her that we was going to go to this special place because it was all special. So even though we were near the road and even though we were only two k's out of Alice, we sat down on the sand and we, it began to dawn on us, a tiny little bit, I've still have no idea what she's talking about, what it means to be in country. It's all sacred. It's all extraordinary. It's all special. The transfiguration is the bringing together of it all in this one vision. And that's it. <laughs>